grab your pre-workout and turn up that volume. It is time for a new episode of the Powerlifters Den with your host, Cam Smith. Welcome everybody back to a new episode of the Powerlifters Den. I'm your host, Cam Smith, and today I wanted to bring on the White Rhino, uh, the world's strongest bodybuilder, Stan Efferding. Why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you for having me on, brother. Yeah, old powerlifter myself. Since retired, just trying to stay ahead of father time these days. Touch a, a reasonable weight every now and then, not as often as I used to, and uh, without hurting myself. That's my goal. Yeah, so um, I was doing a little bit of background search to kind of just try to figure out where I wanted to go, and um, I wanted to know where the name the rhino came from, and I, I only found it on one article from an interview with Mark Bell back in the day. I think it was like maybe early 2010s, um, so if you want to just tell everybody where that name came from. Yeah, that was Flex Wheeler. I always wanted to lift heavy, and he was trying to get me to not do the power lifts and bodybuild. Yeah, so I know over the years you've kind of done both bodybuilding and powerlifting, kind of like a blend between the two. Um, what do you think was the biggest approach difference for you when you were like, whether you were prepping for a meet or a show? Well, initially, I thought lifting heavy weights would make me bigger. Uh, that was uh, a lesson I didn't learn for many, many years. And I, uh, I since advise against that. I don't think that, that heavy singles or doubles or triples are any way to get huge. It's a great way to uh, you know, potentially get injured, to be honest with you. We saw that with Dorian Yates. He talked about the same problem when he was squatting heavy and eventually had to get away from that and get into bodybuilding-style movements, hack squats, leg presses, etc. Um, a lot of folks thought I was bodybuilding and powerlifting at the same time, but at the peak of my career, I would do one and then the other. I would go back and forth. And uh, when bodybuilding, I would utilize all of the evidence-based guidelines for hypertrophy. I would do more volume, more frequency. I would do more range of motion, uh, a little shorter rest periods. Uh, now, I've since I think the, the literature is pretty convincing that you still want to keep two or three minutes between sets. Uh, Flex generally kept me at 90 seconds. But, we were pre-contest, and so I think that may have uh, may have helped at least a little with the amount of calories I was burning in my workout, so I didn't have to do any cardio. And then powerlifting, you know, I, I started uh, decreasing the volume and frequency, and increasing the rest periods, and increasing the loads, uh, and of course practicing the, the powerlifting movements. What Flex convinced me of in 2008 and 2009 when I started training with him was that I had some overdeveloped body parts from powerlifting. I had some really strong front delts, really strong glutes and spinal erectors from squatting and deadlifting. But because of the lack of range of motion and volume, uh, the quads were underdeveloped uh, and the chest, he felt, uh, could be much better. Back was also really strong. I always did a lot of chin-ups and rows and deadlifts. Uh, and so he, he would not let me bench squat or deadlift, and he would have me do a greater range of motion, uh, slowing the movement down a little bit, uh, and doing uh, a, a larger variety of exercises that would kind of give me hypertrophy in those muscles that look best on stage. Mm -hmm. And so I, I prospered then under that tutelage, of course, when Flex Wheeler tells you to do something, I you're well advised to listen, he's extremely experienced, and uh, I ended up getting my pro card under Flex, and then 
moved over to Sacramento and spent a few months with Mark Bell and ended up setting a world record in powerlifting under Mark Bell. So I guess the, the moral of the story is that I had been competing for 25 years, over 20 years at the time, uh, and it wasn't until I, I really, I think, fine-tuned my approach, uh, reached out and got some great coaches that I was able to uh, reach, finally, finally reach that pinnacle of competition in both sports. Yeah. And yeah. with and the with obviously hypertrophy, you want to kind of learn how to grow the muscle. And at, at a certain point, like when you're building muscle or building strength, the muscles respond differently to the different movements and all sets and reps and things. So um, kind of when you were kind of going into a meat prep with Mark Bell, uh, what are some of like the major takeaways you had from Flex that kind of helped you out along your journey in powerlifting? Well, you know, this is powerlifters den. And so some of the advice that I give strong men and powerlifters uh, is, is something that Eddie Cohn also said to me one time. Uh, he only competed, this was probably, I think this was in his book, The Man, The Myth, The Method. Uh, he only competed twice a year in powerlifting. And in between competitions, he would spend a number of months doing hypertrophy training. Uh, and that, for a number of reasons, a bigger muscle could become a stronger muscle. Uh, there's more, uh, I guess we would say um, you end up developing muscles that you might otherwise not if you're just doing the powerlifting movements because there's more variety. You know, things like rear delts and lying hamstring curls and things like that that you wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, he did a lot of behind the neck presses. He did single leg leg presses. Uh, it's good to do some unilateral work, of course. And, uh, so the bodybuilding in particular uh, also increased my cardiovascular fitness. Um, you know, I, I think that Westside and uh, Louis Simmons was big on GPP. I never trained under Louis, but I trained under Mark Bell, who trained under Louis. And I worked with Matt Whitmer out of Beat Training in Cincinnati, who trained under and competed with uh, Louis' group for over 10 years. Uh, and they were big on doing, getting a lot of cardio in. Uh, Louis, I guess, would oftentimes tell newcomers who couldn't keep up with the workout that they would have to spend a couple of months just getting in shape. Yeah. Uh, just dragging sleds and doing volume and you know, just getting the heart rate up and just getting in shape. And that's neat. That's what bodybuilding did for me. And, but bodybuilding was my GPP because you do more frequency and volume and you know, just more sets, more reps, uh, increased cardiovascular benefit. And there's a carryover for that uh, to where when you start powerlifting, uh, I think Kokleyev said this uh, years ago that his dad would make him do a lot of cardio in the off season and he hated it because his strength would go down. But then when he started increasing the weights um, and decreasing the cardio going into a competition, he could train with more frequency and volume and still recover better. And his strength would come back quickly. Mine did too. There was only seven weeks between when I got my IFBB Pro card. It was 246, 248 pounds on stage. It, uh, it was probably one of the most shredded conditions I was ever in. I always hate to say what the body fat percentage is, but I was shredded. <laughs> Seven weeks later, I had put on 35 pounds. Oddly enough, my legs had actually shrunk nearly an inch because I went from doing all the volumizing leg pressing movements with flex to yeah. you know to yeah. a greater range of motion to squatting 800 to barely 90 degrees with Mark Bell. And uh, so I put on over 35 pounds in seven weeks and was able to. You know, I could obviously set the world record in powerlifting at that time, beating Constantin Constantinov's 275 total. 
And uh, you know, so the strength comes back very quickly. It really does. So I, I, I would, I don't want people to get discouraged. Powerlifters in particular, that if they spend a few months doing hypertrophy training, two months, ten weeks, uh, to get the conditioning, get the you know, all the variety of movements, potentially add some muscle, uh, that it could be a good thing. I think it's. When I started working with Hofthor Bjornsson, he was 440 pounds. I brought him down to under th about 395, mainly because the blood work showed that we had a little bit of fatty liver, we had a little bit of insulin resistance, you know, all the things you'd expect, probably an elevated a blood pressure higher than what we would like, all the things you would typically expect from someone at that weight. And so I brought him down and uh, we corrected a lot of that in his blood tests. And then when I took him back up, we implemented a few things that would uh, decrease the fatty liver progression. Uh, those things in particular were, uh, well one, we got him a CPAP, which is huge for his blood pressure. Um, two, we introduced choline into the diet, which is good for the liver, very good for the liver. NAC and Tudka, probably very familiar with your audience, um, and acetylcysteine and uh, Tudka is very good for the liver. Um, we started taking 10 minute walks after every meal so we could partition uh, glucose into the muscles for glycogen storage without uh, the need for as much elevated insulin to do that job. And uh, vitamin D3 was a key component of that. He had a deficiency in that. Uh, we also decreased overall fats and particularly saturated fats. When you have a, what we call an isoenergetic, uh, you know, an equal calorie amount of saturated fat versus unsaturated fat, uh, you see a progression in fatty liver uh, much faster. And so we would introduce salmon, we would use just a lower fat overall, had to cut down on things like bacon and butter and use things like leaner meats, you know, top sirloin or bison was one of the, uh, or a 96.4 ground beef from Trader Joe's is, is always a good choice, just basically decreasing saturated fats overall. Uh, and increasing a little more fiber intake and uh, mostly from fruits to be honest that um, that tends to be uh, easier to digest particularly with those large quantities of food that they have to eat uh, and so I ultimately he was able to get back up to 440 and had uh, a much better blood pressure and didn't have uh, nearly the compromised biomarkers the blood test uh, that we were looking at so uh, that's kind of my speech on bodybuilding versus powerlifting and how you should manage, uh, how you should periodize your weight at least once or twice a year. Come down to a reasonable body fat percentage and look at your biomarkers and make sure you're healthy. I think it's a, a reason why I was able to compete until I was, I mean, I set a world record when I was 44. Uh, and I'm still here at fi almost 56. I'm still in great condition. I don't have any uh, you know, health issues or my joints are recovered, obviously, because I'm not lifting as heavy. but. Uh, I still lift a reasonable amount of weight for my age. Obviously, I'm not uh, lifting what I used to lift, uh, but I'm a little more careful with my joints these days. Yeah, and for so for me, kind of going back to what you're saying about Eddie Cohen's approach with doing one, one to two meets a year and kind of increasing the volume in the off-season, that's kind of what I'm leaning towards more now. Um, I'm doing a lot more volume with my work, trying to get my work capacity up kind of with the lines of like GPP. And um, the goal is to not only put on the muscle mass and do more hypertrophy-based movements in the off-season, but kind of have my conditioning up so when it's time for a meet or to prep under those heavy loads, I'm, I'm really more comfortable under them. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and and I like you know as Louis always talked about, I like things like sled drags, uh, you know, concentric movements. I don't like to do a ton of uh, steady state cardio. I feel like it thins me out, and so I'd rather do something under a little bit of tension. I do a couple of hit sessions a week on a um, uh, on a bike, you know, on one of those uh, assault bikes. So I really get my heart rate up high. Um, Bodybuilding leg training will do that to you anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> I had legs yesterday, and no, I was dying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's a hit session, and you got to be careful how many of those you do a week because you can develop quite a bit of fatigue. So uh, I think all that's smart. I think that we should, as power lifters, I mean, we, we love to, to be big and we love to uh, lift a lot of weight, but be really cautious about uh, our health. And I think if we do enough, if we get our heart rate up enough, consistently enough, and eat, uh, as I mentioned with Hofdor's diet, uh, I think we can, uh, you know, stay healthy, watch our blood pressure, watch sleep apnea, uh, you know, get a blood test and look at blood thickness, your RBC, hemoglobin, hematocrit, uh, donate if necessary, uh, those kinds of things. I have a high blood pressure quick fix kit in my Vertical Diet ebook. I have a high blood sugar quick fix kit. I have a high cholesterol quick fix kit. And I, I take a deep dive into all those things and I put things in a kind of a hierarchy of most important to least important, but I also express that um, it's all multifactorial. There's no one quick fix for any of those things. And uh, if at any point it becomes necessary to, to get medical assistance and to uh, take a uh, blood pressure medication for a short period of time, or maybe use Tadalafil to, uh, for, to help with blood pressure or endothelial function or BPH, you know, benign prostatic hyperplasia, uh, if there comes a time when all of, any of those tools are necessary uh, to achieve your goal without compromising your health, then uh, by all means, I think people should use every avenue available. Yeah, and um, I do remember a few like years back, I was watching the um, like the seminar you gave at Thor's gym about the vertical diet, and um, that's kind of when I learned like I guess the pillars of the vertical diet and. I feel like now you can kind of see the translation of it into the world of bodybuilding and powerlifting. Everyone's eating bison and rice. Sleep is being prioritized way more. Um, I guess one of my questions would be is, obviously with CPAPs, or usually for larger people, what, what kind of goes into um, deciding whether it's something that would benefit someone? There is a, uh, a questionnaire you can just download off of uh, the internet called the STOP S-T-O-P, like a stop sign, stop, bang, B-A-N-G, stop, bang, questionnaire. And you can take kind of a self-assessment. Generally speaking, if you snore and wake up tired, you probably have some degree of sleep apnea. Uh, it has to do with neck girth. So if you're a large athlete or even a, uh, like Jordan Fagenbaum from Barbell Medicine is only 198 pounds. He wears a CPAP. He has a thick neck. And uh, so the, that can influence, um, you know, the airway. If you hold your breath at night, obviously, if you don't have a significant other to monitor that for you, there is a, um, uh, what's that called? You put that on your finger that it, it measures your uh, the, oxygen, yep, a, a, yep. a pulse oximeter. Yep, yep. Uh, you can actually get one of those off of Amazon that hooks up to your iPhone. And it'll do a reading every so often in the morning. It'll show you uh, whether or not your oxygen levels have dipped down. You know, I would say anything below the 90s would certainly be something to warrant an intervention. If you're snoring, holding your breath, if you're uh, 
oxygen levels are dipping at night, um, you may want to look into getting a CPAP for apnea. A lot of power lifters I've discovered over the years and bodybuilders, they can't afford uh, or don't have a doctor or insurance to get a sleep study. Those can be quite expensive, $1,500 plus. Dollars. I think it's compelling enough, particularly if you have elevated blood pressure or if you're waking up tired all the time, which absolutely affects your performance and your recovery and your insulin sensitivity and all those things. Um, I think it's compelling enough to where I would suggest that they get a CPAP, a second-hand uh, CPAP, whether it's uh, uh, from Craigslist. Uh, I've created a relationship with uh, uh, someone who rebuilds, refurbishes CPAPs, uses CPAPs, um, cleans them, changes out the insulation, and then provides them to my clients. And so I, uh, I send that information out to my clients and so they can get a CPAP. Uh, relatively affordably on Craigslist, uh, about $400. Uh, nowadays, the CPAPs are very comfortable. They used to be, well, they used to be CPAPs, continuous positive airway. Now they're BiPAPs, where you, when you exhale, they relieve the amount of pressure that's coming into your face. A lot more comfortable, and then they have these, uh, they have an auto setting on the newer models uh, that'll interpret your breathing during the night, and it'll give you the air that you need. Uh, and not more than you need. And so they will adjust the, its pounds of pressure or however they determine that. Um, so those are the things that, that you know, I would, I would suggest that you think about getting a CPAP for app is going to be a, a huge... I don't say this about a lot of things. I've been in the business a long time. I'm kind of a curmudgeonly old guy when it comes to fancy new things. Uh, but with respect to CPAP, uh, and I first started using one back in 1993 when my body weight started getting north of 240 pounds. Remembering I was a 140-pound freshman in college, so I was a skinny kid. So it took me many, many years. Uh, that was in 85. So it took me eight years to get up north of 240. And then I started having problems, and then I, I got a CPAP. Uh, it's life-changing. That's a word I don't use very often. I, I'm telling you, within a day or two, I went from falling asleep in the car driving to work in the morning, because you're just exhausted you know, all the time, to having just an enormous amount of energy. I mean, you want to mow your lawn, clean your gutters, wash your car, it's, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, so uh, I know I'm trying to sell it here, but I can't emphasize enough what, how big of an impact that has, and that's why I, I focus on it uh, primarily with all of my clients. Yeah, and for me, with having my master's in biomedical engineering, like a, a lot of my study this year was on med devices. And when we kind of went into CPAPs, I was like, hmm, this could be something interesting because I know a lot of powerlifters and bodybuilders use it. And my grandmother actually just got one this past year, and it's the one that has the adjusting airflow. So I kind of like nerded out on it and like looked at all the, basically read the manual for her. And I, it was, it's really interesting to see how just small adjustments like that can drastically improve sleep. Yeah, for somebody with severe apnea, you can reduce your blood pressure by up to 20 points by implementing a CPAP. Uh, same with the RBC hemoglobin hematocrit elevation. A lot of that could be due to uh, sleep apnea. So before you start donating blood every single month, a lot of guys do that. They get a general practitioner that's just chasing normal ranges. Uh, and then next thing you know, people uh, start donating, over-donating, and they end up with anemia. They end up with low ferritin and low iron, and they're exhausted, and they can't figure out why. Uh, and that's just because they're dumping blood too often, and they don't really have uh, polycythemia. They have what's called erythrocytosis, which is not uh, dangerous. It would be similar to someone living at elevation. 
and, and, and those folks probably shouldn't donate. And you should always get at least a ferritin, uh, probably a full iron panel, because ferritin can uh, be a uh, kind of a transient inflammation marker that might not actually uh, be looking at your stored iron uh, if you have some other, you know, like an elevated CRP or bacteria or virus or uh, injecting, uh, you know, gear that isn't filtered correctly. All those things can can cause in inflammation, and, and uh, that might uh, give you a false reading for ferritin. Yeah, so I guess kind of going into like the blood levels and things like that. Um, as like a younger athlete, uh, like I'm 23, so I'm still relatively, obviously, I'm young in the game, and I'm still a natural athlete. So I guess kind of, what would you recommend in terms of monitoring blood levels for someone that's kind of not having it routinely done or things like that? I think it's great for everyone to get a baseline. Just go in and get one test. Okay? I don't think it's something you have to do all that often. I did them on almost a monthly basis. I was curious. I was a guinea pig and I was gaining and losing weight and competing so often that I kind of wanted to see what was happening. And If I implemented some protocol to change the numbers, I wanted to see if they were changing. So if I knew I was you know, utilizing the right path or protocol, I think everybody should get a baseline. It's a mistake that I made. When I was 20 years old, I went in and got a blood test, and I was hypogonadal. Uh, I had low T, severely low T. I had uh, uh, varicoceles, which is a, a vein that doesn't drain from the testicles, and so it'll increase the heat uh, and, and decrease blood circulation, and so you, you can uh, compromise your testosterone levels that way. So, uh, and that was after, you know, I think it was nearly three years of training, I was, went from 145 to 156 pounds. I, I just wasn't grow, I wasn't getting bigger. And you might remember from my Iceland seminar, I kind of opened talking about the fact that if, you know, if you're in the gym lifting weights and you're not gaining any muscle or strength, uh, you know, your, co your coach should probably tell you to go get a blood test because if you're low T, you know, you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. uh, same would be true for women trying to lose weight who are hypothyroid. Uh, you need to go in and get a blood test. And that's not to say that, that you necessarily need um, uh, medical intervention, that you need to, to get on testosterone or thyroid medication, but at least it's an indicator that uh, maybe you need to resolve sleep apnea, maybe you need to lose some weight, maybe you're overtraining, you know, undersleeping. All of those things, you know, too much fatigue, uh, excessive uh, calorie restriction for women in particular, uh, lack of iodine, all those things can affect thyroid. and, and um, so. <laughs> rambling on, I would say that everybody should get a baseline and uh, historically I used to pay almost $300 for a blood test or north of that. And then along comes uh, Derek from More Place More Dates and starts Merrick Health, M-A-R-E-K health.com and uh, he, uh, uh, he reached out to me and I said what can we do about the prices on these blood tests and he uh, sharpened his pencil and went at LabCorp and, and they ended up uh, getting a comprehensive panel, the one I used to get throughout my career, over a hundred blood tests over a 15-year time span, uh, for $144. So that really helped reduce the barrier to entry being cost. Uh, and it's very convenient because it's online. You just go to standeffering.com and click on blood test and, and click a couple more buttons as it directs you to Merrick Health. And they email you um, what's called a requisition form that you print out and take to LabCorp get your blood test, and three to five days later, they send you the results. And the results are reasonably easy to read. It shows you your score, and it shows you the range, uh, the reference range. And so you really only need to look at the things that are outside of that range, at least initially. Um, 
and you may need to consult someone, but at least you'll have uh, some data to work with. And that's, uh, that would be my recommendation out of the gate at any age. I was working with some high school uh, softball players in Arizona a couple of summers ago. And two of the parents told me that their girls were decreasing performance. We were measuring their 40-yard laser time sprint. And they said they were getting slower and they were tired. And, you know, they wanted to attribute it to school and stress and all this other stuff. And, you know, my first question was, what's their iron level? That's the most common deficiency for high school girls who are usually in a caloric deficit, particularly those that are training hard, but also those that are over-restricting certain foods and uh, obviously the menstrual period. That's going to cause significant iron loss. And, uh, when I say over-restricting, it means that usually girls will demonize red meat. Uh, there's where your iron's at. And they'll start eating these egg white protein powder tilapia, broccoli, <laughs> peanut butter diets, you know, yeah, the yeah. guru diet. Uh, and that, you know, starts resulting particularly for athletes in these deficiencies. So anemia. Uh, so we sent them in for a blood test. Sure enough, they were low iron. Uh, so those are easy things to remedy if you know, if you're aware of them. And uh, a blood test helps you become aware of these things. Vitamin D levels, obviously I mentioned thyroid levels, testosterone. Uh, inflammation. There's a whole host of other markers that are of value. Obviously, your cholesterol is in there, your blood sugar uh, sensitivity, uh, HA1C, fasted glucose, fasted insulin, triglycerides, all those things uh, are important for blood sugars. Uh, it's all in there. It's, it's pretty, pretty comprehensive and pretty useful. So I would suggest at least getting a test as a baseline and then seeing where you need to go from there. Yeah, I think I had one a couple of years ago, and I, I did kind of go through it and tried to figure out what everything meant at the time. And obviously, I was still in school, so I was still learning. Um, I do know there's multiple like signs and symptoms and biomarkers for like anemia is pretty obvious for a lot of reasons and low testosterone. But um, I guess what are, what are some of the things for like a high hematocrit level that can kind of show up? Uh, well, that might end up in a little bit of, uh, of uh, tiredness as well. Uh, that's blood thickness, might increase your blood pressure. Uh, and again, the reason for a blood test is because maybe you don't know. Uh, I often will talk about, uh, like I was on Mark Bell's podcast a while back, and I was talking about how LDL is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and that reducing saturated fat is a, an effective way to lower LDL. And of course, there's always some 20-something-year-old guy or 30-something-year-old guy that's like, Oh, I eat steak and eggs and butter every single day, and I feel fine. Well, you don't feel uh, atherosclerotic plaque progression. Mm -hmm. The average age of a first heart attack is 65, and that's plaque that's accumulated for 40 years. And so I'm advising people on things that are kind of beyond uh, their concern, I guess, at that moment, but it, it, it's wise to pay attention. Uh, so that when you get to be my age, and it's, uh, you know, that you don't have, have it, because you can't reverse uh, atherosclerotic plaque. There's no way, once you have calcification in your arteries, there's no, uh, currently there's no treatment for that. And so the best thing to do is avoid it in the first place. Yeah, and I, I think you're kind of a, a pretty good example of longevity in the sport. I, I mean, obviously, you're not competing anymore, but you're still training relatively heavy for what you've done in the past. And, um, I, I guess kind of in terms of like the training aspect of it, um, I noticed you don't use knee sleeves when you train. Uh, I think the post you just posted not so long ago is like the beltless 600 and 
to me that just seems like it would be painful even at this age so kind of maybe what are some of the things that have helped you kind of maintain joint function and things like that well i had terrible joints throughout my powerlifting career for almost 10 years i had chronic tendonitis in my knees and my hips to the point where i had a two different uh, surgeons do MRIs and told me I needed hip replacement surgery. So most of that was overtraining uh, and a lack of, I think, preventative medicine. Uh, I say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I did a video called Keys to Pain-Free Knees on my YouTube and it, it really follows uh, a lot of the pain uh, science originating out of Dr. Larimar Mosley's uh, Explain Pain in Australia, uh, which has been popularized by Austin Baraki and Jordan Fagenbaum from uh, Barbell Medicine. They do a fantastic job about talking about pain and uh, how to prevent it, how to uh, rehabilitate from an injury or pain. Uh, and, and really, the fundamentals are that at some point, if you have an injury or have pain, you need to eliminate the source. And that doesn't mean you have to stop deadlifting if you hurt your back deadlifting. It just means you need to reduce the weight and range of motion uh, or utilize a you know, different exercise that's through the same movement pattern that uh, provides less load that can allow you to put tons and tons of blood in that, in that uh, area that's, that's causing pain. Greg Knuckles referred to it as kinesophobia, when people would stop moving because they had pain. It's exactly the opposite of what you want to do. You want to keep moving because when you stop moving, of course, then the muscles atrophy and the range of motion starts to uh, decline, and that's just going to lead to more pain. And uh, you know, Greg also said that chiropractics and physical therapy are maybe better than nothing, but uh, they pale in comparison to any kind of movement. And that's what we see in the research, and that's not an indictment on chiropractors or physical therapists. It's just that uh, the idea that uh, that you can be fixed. Um, in what I call passive therapies or manual therapies, uh, it has minimal evidence. What a good therapist can do is what I say facilitate movement. They can uh, work with you such that you have a decreased sensation of pain so that you're able to move more freely. Uh, and it's that movement, as mentioned, that is the pathway to healing. So you eliminate the source, find pain-free movements, and everybody has a different um, I call point of entry there as to how much and what range of motion and how often, um, and then move, and move early and often. And uh, a, Dr. Keith Barr um, has a protocol where he suggests you do 10 minutes three times a day, much similar to what I mentioned with the 10-minute walk or a recumbent bike for 10 minutes. Uh, I did that when I was working with Mark Bell in 2010. Uh, I put a recumbent bike in my room and uh, at the hotel I was staying at, you know, I would get up in the morning and uh, I would do 40, actually it was just after breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the time, but I would do, uh, you know, 40 seconds of spin against a modest tension and I would rest for 20 seconds. I would do that 10 times, it would take 10 minutes. When I got off the bike, I had a significant amount of blood in my knees and hips. You know, you'd walk almost like you had a little baby pump from training legs. Uh, but I would do that three times a day. And that's what Keep Bar's recommendation is, is do that about six hours apart, three times a day vastly helps with collagen resynthesis and, and uh, of course the blood flow. You know, those joints, the cartilaginous joints, uh, they aren't innervated by capillaries. So you don't have direct blood flow to those areas. The way that the blood gets to those areas uh, is through a pressure gradient. And that only happens when you're moving that joint. And that joint acts like a sponge. And when you move, uh, it also uh, will 
uh, take the waste products away in the lymphatic system, which doesn't have a pump. You know, it needs move. Mm -hmm. Talked about this uh, in my rants as well. And so uh, another thing that I do now, remember I mentioned uh, that that was kind of pain rehab speech there, my, my protocol for pain rehab. Another thing that I do now, though, in particular at my age, um, I move a lot, uh, sled work, swimming, you know, anything that gets you moving a lot. Uh, the assault bike is fantastic. I, I can't say enough about the assault bike. It's extraordinary, for, especially as you get to be my age and speed becomes something that declines at such a rapid rate. You know, power is, is just gone at this age. The idea of me doing a, and I do plyos, I do box jumps, but I only jump up, I don't jump down. Uh, you have to watch the, the eccentric impact, especially with athletes. But uh, one of the big things I do now is I don't lift as heavy as often. So when you know, I'm pulling heavy, I'll only deadlift heavy once every four or five weeks. And I won't do as many heavy reps. I might work up to a top single, but then I'm, I'm going back down to 70% load for, for reps. Uh, and the way that I build my deadlift is I use less fatiguing exercises that, that can transfer. My two favorite currently is the uh, SSB bar uh, box squat. Um, I actually like Kabuki's transformer bar much better. It allows me to lean forward at more of an angle. The SSB, if you lean forward, it's going to curl your... Yep. <laughs> it's going to end up in your lap, you know. <laughs> Had that happen before. That's a tough bar. Yeah. That is a tough yeah. bar. Uh, I do a little bit of it, but uh, I, uh, so I like the box squat mainly because I don't accumulate as much fatigue because I'm not reversing the weight at the bottom. And it's that, uh, it's kind of that stretch reflex. Uh, also because I dissipate the stored elastic energy that you would get from a squat, the stretch reflex. And when you're doing a deadlift, when you're specifically squatting to transfer to the deadlift, you want to sit and make sure that you don't, aren't bouncing out of the hole because you, you don't have that in the deadlift. And uh, the other exercise I really like is the cambered bar good morning off of pins, or I use spud straps, so it's not quite as noisy. Mm -hmm. And I'll drop the eccentric into the straps, and you'll see that I just kind of crash it down. And then mostly do the concentric. And since the concentric moves slow and heavy, and it's kind of at the pace of a deadlift, I'm getting a similar grind. Uh, and so that transfers very well for me, but it's all uh, hamstrings and glutes and so those two if i can if i can increase weight on those two exercises over the course of four or five weeks my deadlift will go up then i go back to those exercises for another four or five weeks and then i test my strength on the deadlift and the squat i i, I use those for my workouts uh, to minimize the fatigue and the injury potential or at least the accumulation of uh, maybe uh, uh, tendonitis or any of those kinds of things uh, and then I always complete the workout with lots of movement. So I, I might go up and do tons and tons of reps just with a band for extensions or curls or, a, um, uh, you know, hyperextension movement with a little band and just, and just pump out like five sets of 20 and just do 100 reps. And these aren't intended to be anywhere close to uh, failure. They're just intended to pump a ton of blood into those areas. And so the next day I feel pretty damn good. Yeah, that, that's kind of, I'm honestly, that's kind of reassuring to hear from my perspective because, um, like, SSB box squats are one of my favorite movements, and uh, the Cambridge Bar Good Mornings have had a lot of help. And I do like to do, whether it's back extensions with like a mini band around my neck or like a shitload of reverse hypers and just pump up that back, and then my back's super pumped up, but the next day I feel absolutely great. In, in the past, I would be done for like a week. 
right? Right. Yeah. And then um, kind of going back to, I, I'm a big believer in movement as medicine as well. Um, I think there's a big disconnect between like physical therapists and like the world of health and fitness these days. And I think it's starting to get better. Um, I, I know some people are like, there's the argument about icing injuries and stuff or whatnot. Uh, I kind of want to hear your opinion on that. Well, it, even the inventor of rice, rest, ice, yep. Yep. compression, elevation, has said that ice is no longer, he wishes he had never said that. Uh, and we know that because it inhibits blood flow. Mm -hmm. And as we just discussed, the blood flow is critical. And so, no, we don't ice injuries, and we don't ice post-workout because uh, that increase or decreases uh, the hypertrophy response. It can blunt hypertrophy for the same reason. That kind of acute inflammatory response to training is necessary and beneficial. It uh, triggers the cascade of hormones that uh, uh, and um, brings a lot of blood to the area, and that's what you're trying to the effect you're trying to have when you train. So, so no, icing immediately post-training. Uh, I was giving a seminar recently at uh, Southern Methodist University to their football team and coaches, and I have a slide that says things that make you weak. And on there I talk about things like uh, antacids, uh, anti-inflammatories, uh, you know, taking lots of NSAIDs, uh, metformin of all things, um, things like, uh, and on there I put icing post workout. I'm very specific about that because then one of the linemen raised his hand and he said, well, our coaches have us ice uh, sometimes, you know, day before game. And I said, well, that's a different scenario. That's psychologically, if you feel pain, it might inhibit your performance ability. Your body's very protective that way. Your brain is very protective of your body that way. Uh, I didn't go into it in depth when we were talking about pain science with Dr. Larmo Mosley and, and uh, Barbell Medicine. Uh, they they uh, support what's called a biopsychosocial method of pain, and the psychology is is a significant part of pain rehabilitation. And when you have a uh, some sort of pain or injury, your brain will be overprotective, and some of the manual therapy or ice or those kinds of passive therapies may desensitize that signal. Uh, from the brain to the location that you're feeling pain to such a degree that it, it remember again I said facilitates movement whether that's a chiropractor, physical therapist or any of those passive therapies um, and that movement's important and so uh, that's something that you might use ice for if you uh, have a game tomorrow and you're still feeling an extraordinary amount of pain might not be a bad idea to take an ice bath and relieve some of that psychological trauma <laughs> Uh, because you know you got a ball out tomorrow because that's the game and there's nothing else you can do. So under those circumstances, I, uh, I recommend that people do whatever it takes. And, may, and it's largely placebo. Yeah, but if you think it works, it works. We know that about placebo. It's, that's a tool that, that, that uh, is very beneficial to use if you're able to. And so that's my, that's my speech on ice. Interestingly enough, I just had that conversation with John Jones. Uh, you know, I'm down in Albuquerque getting him ready for the... Stipe Miocic fight uh, at Madison Square Garden, November 11th, and so uh, he was asking about the same thing, whether or not we should go do cryotherapy or get ice tanks and ice baths. And, uh, I made that distinction between when and what for. Certainly not post-workout uh, and uh, possibly 
if uh, you're experiencing pain and you want to improve your performance uh, in the short term, it, it could be a benefit. Yeah, and I, I do know that I, I learned not too long ago that kind of ibuprofen and other NSAIDs, they kind of almost work so well that it just stops the recovery process. So um, kind of what I recommend to athletes that have, have like a little bit too much inflammation is like turmeric because it can kind of just reduce into like a natural inflammation level. And so I found benefits from turmeric and I actually did a um, project in my internship about trying to blend turmeric with polymers because it's not necessarily like bioavailable in powder form as well. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, and then um, I guess kind of going back into, I guess you were saying with being with John Jones, um, kind of what's your approach to training a, an athlete of his caliber versus um, I guess maybe like a college football team? Yeah, or a college football team would be another example. Uh, Buddy Morris, some people might recognize the name. He's a legend in NFL football. He's uh, been a, a coach at uh, a strength and conditioning coach at Pittsburgh, uh, I think, um, uh, the Cleveland Browns, and then uh, now at Arizona. Uh, and he uh, he said something one time. He said that uh, at that level, probably one of the most important things you do is get to the gym on time and turn the lights on. And he said that uh, a good coach just learns how to stay out of the way and not, you know, not do more harm than good. I've got to be honest with you, a lot of the pro athletes that I work with, you don't, it's nothing that comes out of the, the CSCS certification from you know, the NSCA. Uh, those aren't the things that you're dealing with. These guys are already strong, well-conditioned, well-disciplined. Uh, extraordinary athletes, genetically, you know, predisposition for the sport. I mean, just incredible. Uh, a lot of it is, is trying to uh, have them avoid doing things that might actually harm their performance. I mentioned strength is never a weakness and things that make you weak. Um, it's kind of like they get distracted by the shiny object syndrome I've been saying for years. And they say, well, what about that? What about that? And these individuals have limited physical capital, and they have a lot of demands on that capital. And so really what you're trying to do is optimize their ability to recover and not uh, get them to waste their time on things that could be better spent either recovering or training. Uh, and so I'm cautious not to overload them uh, and get them distracted or doing things that just really don't provide a return unless, of course, it's, some of them are superstitious, they have particular things they like to do. And as long as it isn't hurting their performance, then you've got to be cautious to you know, allow them to do the things that make them feel good. Um, but, uh, you know, the standard thing, we, we think you need to be strong enough. We think you need to have, you know, sufficient conditioning. We think you have, need to have, obviously, uh, an extraordinary skill set. And we, uh, you know, endeavor to set up a schedule that allows them to at least gain or maintain all of those uh, traits, those uh, physical traits, and so we'll, you know, as we get closer and closer to fight, we'll still touch a little bit of strength, but we won't do it to such a degree that it's going to create fatigue that'll prevent them from doing their MMA training, um, we'll do, you know, the necessary amount of cardio, but by the same token, uh, you know, try not to impede their MMA training, uh, and just understanding what that is and having some measurements in place uh, in order to, uh, to make sure that they are progressing, they're not going backwards, you need to have some testing in there, whether it's a broad jump for strength. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, some intervals that you're doing for cardiovascular training, whether it's swim training or 
Uh, even sleds, you know, how far and how much weight are you dragging in a certain period of time, uh, if that's going to be your test. It should be measurable and progressible, or at least maintainable. Uh, and then you're talking about you're your not getting them injured uh, during practice, but that's hard. That's always kind of a, a touch-and-go situation. Um, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You want them to be able to practice kind of at the speed of the game. You know, what we call you know, sport-specific, obviously, without mm -hmm. uh, injuring them. And that's, that's tough to do. One of the things, we talked about strength, we talked about speed, we talked about power, we talked about skill. One of the things that, that we like to focus on is agility. And agility is your ability to react to a stimulus. And uh, I know some people think you can train that for fighters by, uh, I think the PI has a light board where you stand there and the lights go off and you have to touch the light. Now, unfortunately, about the only thing you get better at on a light board is a light board. Uh, the same thing would be true of, uh, of doing ladder drills for sprinters. But the only thing you get better at uh, is doing ladder drills. Uh, it, it really needs to be, at that point, very sport-specific, um, which is just playing your sport. And so what we do is try and bring in uh, higher and higher levels of fighters. You know, I, I did a video once called The, the Real Reason Why Westside uh, Barbell Athletes Are So Strong. And I discussed the fact that you get a whole bunch of savages into a room together competing against each other day in and day out, year in and year out. Uh, they take things to another level. So what I found training with Flex, he got more out of me than I could get out of myself. That's what I found training with Mark and his team. We were competitive, we would train harder to, to beat each other than we would if it was just a, you know, somebody that you were obviously much better than and wasn't pushing you. Uh, things you see become uh, achievable or real to you. Uh, although I trained with Eric Spoto for years and that never became real to me or achievable. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Spoto, for those who don't, don't know, was the original, uh, one of the original uh, guys who pressed over 700 pounds, 722 world record at one time. Mm -hmm. uh, it was Eric Spoto, he was a freak of adventure. Uh, at one point when we were training together in my garage, I realized I couldn't even be the strongest guy in my garage. It's very humbling, you know. You work up to a 600-pound max, and he puts another plate on and does three reps. <laughs> you know, close grip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, anyhow, that to me, and so we start bringing in better fighters for John. We start flying in guys that are top-level uh, UFC or, or Bellator fighters that maybe a guy with a wrestling skill that's comparable or better than John's, or a guy that's a professional boxer. Uh, and so John can see the speed of the game and, and, and determine whether or not his skill set is... is ready for the ring yeah that's that's pretty interesting too because when i when i had greg on a couple episodes ago um we were kind of talking about like the environment is kind of the biggest thing from west side i think and like it's kind of I'm, I'm a big proponent of i like to be the smallest one in the gym because that means i have a higher ceiling to go to so i, I kind of like that approach and um i think that if you can use that approach and you can use that approach in pretty much any sport if you're the weakest guy in the room or the maybe the dumbest guy in the room you're in the right room you know for years i've been training with uh two different women as part of my training crew one of them was uh, Brittany Pryor, who was uh, who i think she squatted 560 and deadlifted 565 in competition raw uh natural she was a nine-time all-american and shot put and discus uh an extraordinarily powerful athlete uh, and the other one, Jamie Wynn, is uh, head strength and conditioning coach at UNLV. She was also formerly at SMU as a strength and conditioning coach. The point is, is that uh, 
she is focused on creating that environment for the athletes about, um, and even talks to them about, you know, you can come in dragging your ass or you can come in ready to, you know, be a leader and help the team perform, right down to the music. Uh, she, she has all of it, uh, you know, measured and implemented in order to try and get the best performance out of the athletes during that hour that she's got them. Uh, the more you invest into that, obviously the more you're going to get out of it. And so she tries to create the, the right environment. Yeah, and so I, I guess a question for you would be kind of backtracking back to the powerlifting days. Um, like during a meet prep, um, necessarily like the, the mental game can be draining towards the end of prep when the fatigue starts setting in. What were kind of some of the, um, maybe like the mantras you went by or some of the cues in your head that kind of helped you to maintain that level of like energy? Yeah, well, I, you know, the neat thing about powerlifting is that you can eat all you want uh, for most people. I know some people try and make weight classes, but I, you know, I was never that far above my weight class that it wasn't a pretty easy water cut. The heaviest I ever really got was in the low 280s when I was uh, training for a, a 275 meet. Uh, I did get over 300 pounds on a few occasions, but it, it wasn't, you know, with the concept, with the idea of trying to cut weight. Uh, one was for the world's strongest pro body, but early weight classes didn't matter, of yeah. course. Uh, so, uh, I, I track everything. I have a, a Excel spreadsheet. I know some people like to use apps, but I, I look at apps kind of like junk drawers in the kitchen. It's, once you put something in there, you know, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind. Uh, I have a Excel spreadsheet piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper with some uh, boxes on them. And I put the, day the days of the month across the, the top, and I put this list of things down on the left-hand side. And it includes, you know, things like my supplements and vitamins and my gear. But it also includes my morning weight, my night weight, uh, my hours of sleep, uh, what I trained that day, what my top sets were. Uh, and I, that chart, uh, you know, gets filled up with a bunch of numbers and X's and check marks. And, uh, and at least I know if I'm meeting all of those, uh, all those requirements, all the things that I want to do to get ready for the competition. And I'm, it's so regimented and consistent, the time I train, what I train. Uh, I even would get the same bars that I would be using in competition. If I was going to go to a competition, I would make sure I found out ahead of time uh, exactly which bar. Is it an Oki bar or is it a Texas deadlift bar? You know, and then I would make sure I had that bar. Uh, if it's, is it a 55-pound squat bar? Because you know those are thicker than the 45-pound bars. And, yep. Uh, yep. So you'd want to be training with that. And so uh, the monolift, same thing. If I'm going to you know, lift out a monolift, I want to know. Uh, so I just made sure that I tried to replicate meat day. I would time all of my rest periods so that uh, I would have a chair to sit in and, and everything was on a clock. And uh, so I, I just tried to replicate it as best I could so I got there with no surprises. I, I'm obviously extremely disciplined with my diet so I don't have any distractions in that regard. When I travel, I would take my food with me. Uh, many times I have flown out to uh, World's Strongest Man competitions ahead of time to help Hofdor or Brian Shaw uh, get ready for uh, competition by you know going to grocery shopping and setting them up with an Airbnb and uh, just making sure they had everything they needed for the week. Because uh, uh, more recently, I'm working with uh, some of the wrestlers from the women's um, uh, Olympic wrestling team, and uh, one of them traveled internationally recently and did not take meals with her, ate something local, and uh, got uh, got food poisoning. Mm -hmm. Ended up with diarrhea and vomiting, lost like seven pounds and. Uh, was supposed to be a shoe-in for the gold and ended up with the bronze. Wow. Which, you know, wow. Kudos to her under those conditions to still perform at that level. But uh, 
you know, my concern obviously was the fact that she didn't uh, pack a rolling Coleman cooler with about 20 frozen prep meals and uh, just throw them on the plane and take them with her. Yeah. That problem. So I'm, I'm very disciplined right down to the meals, taking them with me, staying in a place that's got a microwave and fridge or a little extended stay or something like that, and just going grocery shopping and, uh, and not having any distractions. I, I don't eat anything that I haven't been eating for a number of weeks before the show, the competition, because you know, why introduce something that might cause you gastric distress or something? Uh, those are just variables that are controllable. And so I just, I just had all that in order. Yeah, I think that's funny kind of talking about like being so regimented. It kind of reminds me of that uh, the one time I heard like Brian Shaw when he goes to travel to a competition or whatever, he'll go and buy a mattress if the mattress he's sleeping on isn't the right mattress because he's so particular about the, his approach. So. Indeed, everything you can control. Yeah, I think... Um, I guess to kind of wrap things up, I guess, uh, I, I like to ask all my guests if you could give a new powerlifter or someone kind of going into their first meet, like one piece of advice, what would you say? <laughs> I made this mistake myself. There's so many pieces of advice. We covered most of it, the fact that you're going to want to make sure and have your nutrition, hydration, sleep schedule, don't take a red-eye flight, you know, all those stupid things. Take all, take all the dumb shit out of the way. But, um, in one meet, I opened up a brand new pair of shoes and put it on for the first time right before I started warming up for my squat. <laughs> and uh, bad idea. They, were, they, were, uh, they didn't have a big enough toe box and I have, a, I have bunions and so my feet were screaming sore and, uh, and I ended up actually missing my opener. And, uh, it was, uh, don't do anything new or crazy. I'd say the same thing to a bodybuilder last week. Don't do anything fucking crazy, you know. They try and get 10% better and they end up getting 5% worse, you know. Uh, or even 1% better and getting 10% worse. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things happen. So it's be consistent. Uh, there's other meats to, to fight another day. And uh, just uh, make sure that you're, that you're competing the same way you practice. Yep, that's awesome. Practice how you play. It's a big one. Um, I just want to thank you again for coming on and taking the time out. It was an honor to have you on. Um, I hope things go well with John Jones and training camp, and uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you, brother. Hey, anybody needs uh, more information, stanefforting.com is my website, uh, and I have a nationwide meal prep company that uh, I ship meals all over the country, Monster Mash, to your door. Uh, at Stan Effording is my Instagram, and on YouTube, I mentioned I've got a number of rants, and uh, all of that's pretty educational material. There's a lot of free material on there is Stan Effording, so anything you need, find me on there. Yeah.